This is dialogue number three between the culprit and the Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic. Well, friend, I see you are still traveling about with your pack of books. I've been thinking much about our last conversation respecting the love of Christ and what you call the new birth, and have come to the conclusion that the religion of Protestants is mere enthusiasm. Who would give any credit to a man who should profess to have experienced a new or heavenly birth? The thing is foolish and absurd, and this shows how dangerous it is to leave everyone to interpret the scriptures for himself. Ignorant and conceited people catch up certain words of scripture by the mere sound, and put a meaning upon them, which they were never intended to bear by the inspired writer. Culpeter. Then you do not believe any change of heart necessary to fit a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I thought your authors did hold that the sinful heart must be renewed before it can go to heaven, but insisted that all who were properly baptized were regenerated or received grace at the moment of their infant baptism. This you before acknowledged. And what is there more foolish or absurd in supporting the Spirit of God to renew the soul of an adult under the preaching of the Word than the regeneration of a child by infant baptism? If the Spirit of God operates at all on the minds of men in these latter days, there is no reason why He may not operate on the minds of poor lost sinners to bring them to repentance. If it were not so, there would be no hope of salvation for any sinner. For even if the priest could give him absolution, as you think... An unholy soul never could be received into heaven, and if admitted there never could enjoy the holy pleasures of the place. Verily there must be a new birth, by which is meant nothing else but a sincere conversion or a true repentance, by which a sinner obtains new views, experiences new affections, forms new purposes, enjoys new hopes and pleasures, and immediately begins to live a new life. And if, and if, you, and if you acknowledge that many of your people lead a profane and wicked life, these, even if they were regenerated in their baptism, have lost the grace and received and need to be renewed again to repentance. You recollect that in a former conversation you said that the reason why all baptized persons did not give evidence of a renewed heart was that they through negligence and sin lost the grace and received. And if they needed regeneration in infancy, when they had no sin but original sin to be removed, how much more do they need renovation now? When they have added to their original sin so many actual transgressions and have formed evil habits and dispositions of the most inveterate kind. As to enthusiasm, I am no friend to it. But you have no right to charge it upon Protestants, and especially for professing a change of heart, which you cannot deny to be necessary. But if you are disposed to cavil, I think we had better close the conversation and say no more. My earnest wish has been to quit disputing and to converse about the vital parts of true religion, and therefore I propose the subject of the love of God, concerning which there can be no dispute, as all must allow that this is necessary. And I ask you what you believe to be the evidence that a man did love Christ, and whether you possess such evidence. But you seem unwilling to come to the point, and I have no right to compel you to answer. But my dear sir, it is your own concern. Your eternal interests are at stake, and time is fast rolling away. Soon both you and I must appear at the judgment seat of Christ to answer for the deeds done in the body, whether they have been good or bad. And I am persuaded that no absolution by a priest will avail anything to the impenitent sinner on that day, whether he be called Papist or Protestant, will then be of no account. But the point of great, yea, of infinite importance will be whether he is robed in the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ, and whether he has become a new creature and has exercised that faith which works by love and purifies the heart. As I may possibly not see you again, I solemnly, I solemnly warn you of the danger which in my opinion hangs over you. 
For though it is not my place to judge any man, yet when we think of a fellow creature is exposed to misery, charity requires that we should warn them whether they will hear or forbear. I cannot be uncharitable in supposing that you are an unconverted man, as you do not profess to have experienced any such change, and indeed do not believe in its reality. But as I feel a real love for your soul, I would affectionately entreat you to look well into this manner, and do not trust so implicitly to the teaching of your priests. They may mislead you to your ruin. Christ said of the scribes and Pharisees, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Do, friend, take this New Testament and compare it with your own, and you will find that they agree in all important points. You will find that a change of heart is no enthusiastic notion, but clearly taught in your own Bible. Catholic. You're mistaken, sir, in supposing I possess a testament. I wish I had one, which our priest will approve. Culpeter. I'm sorry to part with you, but do take this book. You need say nothing about it to the priest, lest he take it from you and burn it. But lest he extort the secret from you at confession, I only lend you the book till I come again. And may God bless a reading of it to your own soul. Dialogue number four between the Culpeter and the Roman Catholic. Culpeter, well, friend, have you read any in the Bible which I left with you when I was last here? Will you let me know what you think of the book? Catholic, to be sure, we all agree that the Bible is a good book, the best of all books, and was given by inspiration of God. No good Catholic disputes that, and I must confess that I have taken much interest in reading many things, both in the Old and New Testaments. Culpeter, what right then has a priest to deprive you of the benefit of reading the word of God, which Paul says is able to make you wise unto salvation through faith that is in Jesus Christ? And from the same passage we learn that children were allowed in old times to read the Holy Scriptures. For the Apostle says, From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. And in all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is not one word forbidding or discouraging anyone from reading the Word of God, but frequent exhortations to search the Scriptures, and the errors of some are attributed to their ignorance of the Scriptures. Of all the errors of Romanism, this practical one of denying the Scriptures to the people is the most unreasonable and the most injurious. In this free country, I wonder that any man who has a spirit of independence in him can submit to such tyranny attended with effects so disastrous. That must be a fearful superstition which binds a man's conscience to relinquish such a privilege when his own judgment is convinced that the thing is right and good. Catholic, you have now touched upon the key, which will explain what at first sight seems to be a paradox. The truth is that we must not be governed by our own private judgment, but by the decisions of the church. No scripture is of private interpretation. No man has a right to judge for himself in manners of religion. And here is the true ground why the Bible is not put into the hands of the people. They are not competent to judge of its doctrines and precepts, and their reading the scriptures can therefore be of no use to the common people, and might fill their minds with notions contrary to the established doctrines of the church. See among Protestants the sad effects of leaving people to form their own opinions from reading the Scriptures? You are cut up into innumerable sects and parties, all professing to take their tenets from the Bible. Culpeter, I see how the manner stands. You are under an intolerable yoke of slavery, for no slavery on earth is so dreadful as that which binds fast the understanding and conscience of men. Why did our Creator endow us with rational minds if we are not permitted to exercise them in searching for and judging of truth? And how deplorable the condition of those who are secretly convinced that certain things would be both right and beneficial, but, but dare not follow the dictates of their own reason and conscience, because a set of domineering priests have undertaken to judge for them, this is a bondage to which I never could submit. I never will pin my faith to another man's slave. Suppose he is mistaken or designedly misleads you. 
Will he be answerable for the loss of your soul or for the injury which your spiritual interest may sustain? No, every man must bear his own burden. Every man must account for the improvement of his own talents and opportunities of knowing the truth. Christ addressed himself to the understanding and consciences of the people and called upon them to judge of the truth of what he said. Paul addressed the Corinthians as rational men, saying, I speak as unto wise men, judge you what I say. Upon this principle it is perfectly useless for me to endeavor to convince you of the truth. For if you should see the truth ever so clearly, you dare not profess it or act in accordance with it. You must believe what the church tells you to believe, however absurd or impossible the thing may be. And you can only know what the church requires you to believe from the priest. And if you should happen to be an ignorant or hypocritical man, you will of course be led astray, perhaps to your eternal undoing. It would be just as reasonable to shut your own eyes and blindly follow the lead of others when you have the right and the ability to see and choose your own path. And the only text that can be adduced which has the semblance of proving that all men may not read the Scriptures is the one referred to by you that no prophecy is of any private interpretation. But this text is, in my opinion, altogether perverted when thus applied. I am confident that that is not its true meaning. It implies nothing contrary to the right of private judgment or interpretation, but warns everyone not to pervert an obscure prophecy by interpreting it according to his own pleasure or fancy, contrary to the design of God in uttering it. The prophecy we are told in the next verse was spoken by holy men as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and God will fulfill it, not according to our false glosses, but in its real import. What could be more absurd than for the apostles to address long epistles to the people if they were not allowed to judge of the meaning of those epistles? I am sure you must admit that you are abused by your spiritual guides and deprived of the most important rights and privileges. But, my friend, I have no desire to dispute with you or any other man. I'm not fond of controversy. It seldom does any good and often increases the prejudices of those we wish to convince. All I aim at in what I have said, what you will acknowledge to be right, namely to give the subject a fair examination. And I do not see how you can do this without the Scriptures as your guide. For if you are inclined to give implicit credit to everything your priest tells you, then there is an end to all inquiry. But if you wish to be sure that what he teaches you is right, or if not, that you may know in what he errs, then you must refer to the Bible as you believe that to be the word of God. One thing, the importance of which you cannot deny, I would earnestly request of you, which is, that you accompany your examination with earnest prayer for divine direction. I have the opinion that no one ever sincerely sought divine direction who is not directed essentially in the right way. Indeed, it is a divine promise, seek and you shall find. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And seek not merely to have your understanding convinced, but pray that the truth made by the power of the Spirit have its due effect on your heart. I should think it a small matter to be able to persuade you to become a Protestant. My heart's desire is that you become a true Christian, whether you become a Protestant or not. If your heart is truly renewed, and your faith fixed on the blessed Redeemer, whom your creed holds to be both God and man in one person, if your trust for salvation shall be in His atoning sacrifice and prevalent intercession, I shall be satisfied. My chief aim is to bring my fellow sinners to that Savior in whom I trust. I have found redemption for my own soul. I would rather by far see you an humble Christian in the Catholic Church than a zealous Protestant of any denomination without giving evidence of being actuated by the Spirit of Christ. For if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, says Paul, he is none of his. 
I'm far from thinking that all Protestants are in a safe state, or that all Roman Catholics will be lost. I believe that every one of whatever nation or religious denomination who truly repents of his sins and sincerely believes in Christ will be saved, and that all who are destitute of cordial faith and repentance must be lost. The point then which above all others I wish to press upon your attention is the religion of the heart, a saving interest in the blessings of the covenant of grace. If your heart be right in the sight of God, then you will be led in the right way in your external conduct. Without vital piety, consisting in supreme love to God and love to our neighbor, it matters little what profession we make or in what connection we stand. My dear fellow sinner, I exhort and beseech you by the love of God and by the tender compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ that you turn not away from the consideration of the subject. Look back on your past life, from your infancy up to this day, and consider how many sins you have committed. Deceive not yourself, I entreat you, with the notion that the priest has forgiven them. No, no, he has no such power. If you have, if not, you have not sincerely repented of them all, and been washed in the blood of Jesus, applied by faith, the guilt of all these sins lies heavy on your soul. Listen then to the word of friendly exhortation. Look not unto man, but unto God for pardon. He is able and willing to take away all iniquity and to receive you graciously if you will come unto him in the new and living way which he has ordained. Christ stands and knocks for admittance into your heart. Christ is suspended on the cross, cries unto sinners, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Christ invites the weary and heavy laden to come unto him and find rest. He says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Behold, the fountain of life is open, and the water of life is freely offered. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Seek therefore the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Lay to heart these solemn, tender exhortations from the word of God, and let your heart bend in humble submission to the will of God. Behold, he waits to be gracious. Dialogue number five, between the culprator and the Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic, I find that you are disposed to refer to the Bible for the proof of all your doctrines, but we maintain that many things which Christ and his apostles ordered in the church can be learned only by tradition. It is a matter of no consequence whether a law is written or not, provided we know it emanates from the proper authority. And we know that the Christian church existed before any book of the New Testament was published, it is certain, then, that the primitive churches were first instructed by oral communication and not by the scriptures, and what they thus received they handed down to their successors. And our learned men say that the church might have existed, flourished, and continued unto this time without any of the books of the New Testament. For it was easy for one generation to teach the generation which had been communicated to them by the apostles, and thus the original revelations and institutions would be handed down from age to age. Culpeter, what you say is true, that an oral or spoken law, if it can be proved to have been uttered by the lawgiver, is as binding as a written law. But such is the uncertainty of oral tradition, that it is impossible to know what is true and what is false, which comes down to us along this muddy stream, especially as it had to pass through many dark periods, when the learning and information of the people were at a very low ebb. It is impossible for doctrines and rules of conduct to be transmitted through a period of 1,800 years without being grievously corrupted. 
In the beginning of the world, the revelations made to the first man were soon entirely lost or corrupted. Whatever knowledge existed after the flood was preserved by frequent divine communications. I would ask any of your most learned priests to furnish a single discourse of Christ or any one of the apostles not recorded in the New Testament. Yea, let them produce one single sentence from any inspired man which we can be sure was uttered by him. Now, if they cannot furnish the very words spoken by Christ or his apostles, they ought not to pretend that they are in possession of a portion of the word of God which was never committed to writing. And if we go up near to the times of the apostles, when it might be thought that many things would have come down by tradition to men living in the second and third centuries, yet we find by the writings of that age, which remain, that the most learned doctors of the church knew nothing of the sayings and doings of Christ and his apostles, but what they read in the New Testament, or as some real facts did float down the stream, they were mingled with so much that was false, that it was impossible to distinguish a true facts from the lying legend. When the early fathers, as Irenaeus, Tertullian, and so on, appealed to tradition to prove the doctrine and usages of the church, they did not refer to doctrines and facts not in the New Testament, but to those which were commonly known and believed by all Christians. For when these fathers mention the things handed down by tradition, they are found to be the articles of the early creeds, which were drawn up for the use of the new converts. Catholic. But if they add these things recorded in Scripture, why appeal to tradition? Culpeter. Because they were contending with heretics who denied the fundamental doctrines of Christianity and did not receive the Scriptures as a true account of the Christian religion. Against such they appealed to the universal tradition of all the churches, all of which in every part of the world had received the same leading facts and doctrines. Catholic. In regard to the books of the New Testament, you are, after all, obliged to resort to tradition. For how do you know that the Gospels and the Epistles were really written by the evangelists and apostles, but by traditions? Culpeter. This, I know, is an argument greatly boasted of by your writers. But if, but if it were granted, that is, by the testimony of the early church, that we know which books are part of the canon, it would go but a very little way to establish the Roman doctrine of tradition as a rule of faith. The fact that certain books were received as inspired by the universal church is one of so public a nature that it could easily be transmitted by written testimony of the successive ages, but this does not prove that a revelation distinct from that in the New Testament could be safely handed down in this way. We know by tradition that Cicero delivered many orations which were committed to writing and have reached our time, and that Livy wrote a history of Roman affairs, a part of which has come down to us. That these authors did write these books has come down by an uncontradicted tradition, and on this ground is credible. But suppose someone would pretend that other orations of Cicero were never committed to writing, and other histories which Levi recited but never wrote had come down to us by tradition, every man of sense would laugh at such a pretension. You see, friend, the vast difference between receiving by tradition a single fact in relation to the author of a book, and receiving a revelation, an unwritten word of God, it may be admitted that a ceremonial institution such as baptism or the Lord's Supper might be handed down by tradition, but so prone are men to add to and alter such institutions and to invent others that if we had no written record, we should be at a loss to know what had been instituted. Just so it is now with respect to the sacraments. In the New Testament we read of no more than two ordinances of this kind, but in the Romish church there are seven. And such changes have been made in the two which were instituted by Christ that they can scarcely be recognized as the same. The existence of these seven sacraments, as they are called, in the Roman Catholic Church shows how uncertain is tradition, 
And in regard to a multitude of other ceremonies, they may be traced up, not to the apostles, but to a heathen origin. The holy water, the incense, the altar, the sacerdotal vestments, the holy days and the dedication of churches to saints and angels are all borrowed manifestly from the pagan ritual as has been demonstrated by learned men. Catholic, you are now going off in a strain in which my limited information does not permit me to follow you. Whether what you say is true or not, I cannot judge. I only wish that our learned bishop or even Father Benedict was here. They would soon put an end to your boasting. But one thing I must say, that our church is infallible. It cannot err in matters of faith. The decision of popes and councils is sufficient to satisfy the mind of any reasonable man. Culpeter, if you could prove what you now say, all your other arguments are superfluous. Even tradition is of no use. All that is necessary is to hear the Pope, for if he is infallible, he can decide every question of doctrine. An inspired man needs to bring no far-fetched arguments or to resort to tradition for proof of anything. All you have to do is to get the Pope to open his mouth and utter his decree, or to send his bull to the whole church. But how is it possible that you can believe the Pope to be infallible, when it is notorious that some of the Popes have been among the wickedest of men? They have, in a number of instances, acknowledged themselves to be in error. They have, in numerous instances, contradicted one another and reversed each other's decrees. They have contradicted the plain declarations of Scripture. And as to councils, we are sure that any number of fallible men met together cannot by merrily assembling become infallible. The acts or canons of the councils have often been contradictory to one another. So that we are sure infallibility does not reside in them. The truth is the claim to infallibility is ridiculous. There is no infallible tribunal upon earth but the word of God. This is infallible, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Dialogue number six. Between the Roman Catholic and the Culpeter. Roman Catholic. I never wish for learning so much as I do now. I find that a man may have the right side and yet not be able to maintain his cause for want of learning. There is one point, however, on which a child may confute a Protestant because the scriptures are plain and express on the subject. I lately heard our priest lecture on it, and he made it to my mind clear as a light at noon. Culpeter, pray let me know to what you refer. Catholic, why that Peter was the prince of the apostles, and had the whole church built on him, and the popes of Rome are the regular successors of Peter, and inherit his authority. Now, according to this, which can be clearly established, all the churches in the world should be subject to the Pope, for he has a keys, he has a power of binding and loosing. And the church founded on this rock, Peter, can never fail, and therefore can never fall into fatal error. For if that was possible, then would the promise of Christ fail, who declared that the gates of hell should never prevail against the church. The whole passage is found in Matthew 16, 18-19. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Our doctor says, as long as this text stands in the Bible, the Catholic Church cannot be overthrown. Yea, he went so far as to say that no Protestant had been able, even plausibly, to interpret this text to suit their scheme. He told us of several weak attempts to rescue the text from the hands of the Catholics, the mention of which caused a smile in his audience. He said that the name Peter in Greek signified a rock, 
and that our Savior gave him this name when he called him to be an apostle, because he knew that he would make him the foundation stone of the church which he was about to establish in the world. Culpeter, I wonder that anyone should presume to maintain that one of the apostles was set up as superior to the rest, was ever read the reproof which Christ gave to the disciples for continued which should be the greatest. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as he younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. Luke 22, 24-26 Christ says nothing about any superiority of Peter over the other apostles. Indeed, as Peter spoke in the name of his brethren, in the noble confession which he made, what Christ addresses to him in reply should be understood as applying to them all. And this is found to be correct from consulting the parallel passage in John 20, verse 21, where the same power is expressly given to them all, which is here given to Peter. And Jesus said unto them, As my Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Here the power granted by the risen Savior is the same to all. If Peter was to have a preeminence over the rest, now was the time to declare it, that all might understand that he was chief. But such a superiority is neither given here nor anywhere else. Neither did Peter ever claim such superiority, nor was it ever in fact conceded to him, as the whole history of the apostles shows. But if Peter had been constituted the Pope over the other apostles, that does not prove that the same preeminence belongs to those falsely called his successors. The bishops of Rome were no successors of Peter. We never read in the New Testament that he even visited Rome. He was the apostle of the circumcision, and Antioch seems to have been his headquarters, and Asia Minor the field of his labors. But let us admit, in accordance with ancient tradition, that Peter visited Rome toward the close of his life, and that he governed the church there while he lived, and that he suffered martyrdom in that famous city. What does this prove in regard to the men who have been placed as bishops in that see ever since? Surely nothing. The bishops of Rome acquired their authority not from being successors of Peter, but because this was the metropolis of the empire. We find that bishops, after ambition began to work, assumed authority from the dignity of the city where they resided. But why should the bishop of Rome, now when the glory of the city has departed forever, claim not only a superiority, but an arbitrary authority over all other bishops? The claim is full of arrogance. If any church had a right to preeminence, it was Jerusalem, the mother church. And if the bishops of any church had any peculiar claims as successors of Peter, the bishops of Antioch ought to have the preeminence. Dialogue number seven. Roman Catholic, there is one point where we Catholics have a great advantage over you Protestants, and that is in regard to the Holy Sacrament. In the Eucharist, you profess to have nothing but the naked bread and wine, whereas we have the real body and blood of Christ, which we take into our mouths for the nourishment of our soul. When the priest celebrates Mass, the body and blood of Christ are as truly present and offered as a present sacrifice for our sins as when he was crucified on Golgotha. Culpeter. On this point I admit there is a great difference between us, and if all that you say was the truth, we should be in great error. But on the other hand, if your doctrine of transubstantiation is false and unscriptural, 
you will be convicted of the grossest idolatry in worshiping a wafer for a god. And if this doctrine is false, your mass which your priests offer up with so much solemnity is a vain offering and is calculated to bring dishonor on the real sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the one offering by which the sins of this people are purged. Catholic, how can you, a Bible man, and so great a stickler for going according to the very letter of the Scripture, pretend, pretend that the doctrine of transubstantiation is unscriptural? Does not our Lord say expressly when He held the bread in His hand, This is my body? Now everyone knows that the bread cannot be His body without being changed into His body. We insist on the literal interpretation of the words. No doubt this is a great mystery, and so is the Trinity and the Incarnation of the Son of God. But a true faith embraces all mysteries, and the greater the mystery, the greater the miracle, and the more worthy of God with whom all things are possible. Culpeter, surely you will not say that everything in the Bible must be taken literally, when it is said that God is a rock, a shield, a sun, a tower, or a consuming fire. We cannot take these words in any more than a metaphorical or figurative sense. So when Christ says, I am the vine, would anyone be so insane as to say that the phrase must be taken literally? In this very passage, Jesus said, This cup is the New Testament, or covenant, in my blood. But taken literally, it would make no sense, for a cup is not a covenant. The question to be decided is whether the words, This is my body, should be taken literally or metaphorically. And I will assign such reasons against a literal interpretation as I think sufficient to convince any impartial man. They are these. First, there is no apparent change in the bread or wafer after the priest's benediction. To the eyes of everyone, it is still the same. To the filling, to the smell, to the taste, it is bread and nothing but bread. Take a piece of the same loaf, not consecrated. Compare them together. There is no difference perceptible by any of the senses. Now in all miracles, the appeal is made to our senses. The water is changed visibly into blood in Egypt. The water at the marriage feast in Cana is changed into wine, which the master of the feast judged to be good, better than what they had drunk before. When the loaves and the fishes were multiplied, an abundance produced is visible to all and is eaten by the whole multitude. When the dead were raised, a person no longer appeared to be dead, but came forth and spoke and acted. And so of all miracles, if the bread and the Lord's Supper were changed into flesh and the wine into blood, instead of seeing the bread and wine remaining the same, we should see a piece of flesh dripping with blood. We have no conception of any substance but by its qualities. When these remain evidently the same, according to the testimony of all our senses, there can be no change in the substance. Besides, if we are to disbelieve our senses in this case, which is never required in any other case, the doctrine will overthrow itself. For how do we know that there is any such word in the New Testament? You may say, well, here it is in plain letters. But how am I to know that those letters are written there? I see them, it is true, and I can run my hand over them, and they seem to be such as you say they are, but I see this consecrated wafer as plainly as I see the letters in the book, and I can examine it by more of my senses, and it is precisely after consecration what it was before. Catholic, I think there is something profane in your reasoning on such a sacred subject. There is no room for reasoning. What God says must be true, though all our senses and our reason should judge the contrary. Christ positively said, This is my body, and it is our duty to believe his declaration. God is omnipotent and can change any substance into another, and he can do this while to all appearance it remains the same. All we need is an implicit faith in the word of God. 
Culpeter, you evidently take for granted what should be proved, namely, that those words must be taken literally. Surely this is not self-evident. Of a thousand intelligent readers who had never seen a New Testament, I doubt whether one would ever dream that Christ, when he held up the bread, meant that that piece of bread was his body literally. No, he would naturally suppose that the words were used figuratively and signified that the bread resembled his broken body or represented his broken body. But this brings me to my second reason against a literal interpretation, and that is that unless Christ had two bodies, it was literally impossible that the piece of bread which he held in his hand was his body, for there was his real living body present to the view. There was his whole body, and no part had been severed from it. Therefore, it was impossible for this bread to be his real body. According to this monstrous doctrine, one living body of Christ visible and palpable, yet live and held another body in its hand, and distributed it to be eaten, while this real living body remained entire and undivided. Can you believe this, or how do you explain it? Catholic, it is an awful mystery. I do not pretend to explain it. Culpeter, it is much more than a mystery. It is an evident impossibility. But I am not done. I will now offer a third conclusive argument against a literal interpretation, which is this. Christ says, This is my body, which is broken for you. If we take these words literally, then we must believe that Christ was already crucified before he was crucified. If we take one part of the declaration literally, we must take the whole literally. And can you believe that the body of Christ was already broken for us? Then he must not only have had two bodies, but was twice crucified. For I'll admit that by his body broken it meant crucified for us. But when was this crucifixion? It must have been while the bread was broken in his hand. Then the living Christ crucified or broke the body made out of the bread. But no one can believe that Christ was already crucified, or that his body was already broken. Therefore the whole sentence must be interpreted metaphorically. And the meaning is, this bread broken is the living representation of that death which I am shortly to endure. Here is evidently the true meaning. And I believe this with all my heart. And the charge of profaneness and infidelity may be rolled back on yourself for making Christ declare what was in the first place impossible, and in the next place what was false, namely that his body was already broken while he sat with his disciples at the sacred supper. What do you say to this? Catholic, I've told you that I received the whole as an awful mystery, not a fit subject for reasoning, but only for faith. The more wonderful it is, the more readily I assent to it. Culpeter, if this be the state of your mind, I do not see that any benefit can arise from continuing the conversation. But I, but I intended to offer one other reason against the doctrine of transubstantiation, which I will briefly mention and then quit the subject. It is this. The flesh of Christ being a natural substance and its physical qualities like other human flesh, except that it had never had the least stain of impurity, cannot be considered to be adapted to the nourishment of the divine life in the soul. No corporal substance entering the mouth and going thence into the stomach can have any effect on the spiritual life. All that it can do is to nourish the body. And we cannot understand that any benefit could be spiritually derived from eating the body of our Lord, but by the internal operation of the Holy Spirit on the mind itself. And this divine efficacy would be as beneficial to the soul if it accompanied sacrament bread as if it accompanied the flesh of Christ. Besides, we are at a loss to understand what becomes of the sacred body of Christ after it is eaten and digested. Does it become, does it become like other nutritious food, a part of our bodies? The idea is abhorrent, and more so the alternative that is rejected with that part of our food which is not incorporated with the human body. 
But indeed, sir, there are so many repulsive consequences flowing from this doctrine that it becomes distressing to pursue the subject into all the legitimate conclusions which may be deduced from the literal interpretation. And the rule universally admitted is that when taken a word or sentence literally leads to absurdity, impossibility, or falsehood, it should be understood figuratively. Indeed, the very idea of devouring the flesh and blood of Christ is something exceedingly repulsive to our feelings. Catholic, you seem to forget that Christ himself in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John speaks repeatedly of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Yeah, he makes such eating and drinking absolutely necessary to eternal life. Culpeter, no friend, the forgetfulness is on your side. Christ explains his own words and already shows that they were misapprehended by the Jews who understood them literally. For at the close he says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now these words do most clearly teach that the eating his flesh, if it were possible, would profit nothing. That all vivifying energy was not from carnal and corporal eating and drinking, but from the spirit. That all which he had spoken was to be understood in a spiritual sense. What other interpretation can be put on his declaration? The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Dialogue number 8 Roman Catholic You went away the other day before I had time to say all that was on my mind. But I do not care to go back to the subject we were on about fasting on Friday. I know that you Protestants are not fond of fasting. Our priest called here since you passed, and I told him something of our conversation. He laughed heartily and observed that a dislike of fasting and other restraints of religion was a true secret of Protestantism. He said there was more of appetite in the love of ease and of conscience in what was falsely called a reformation. Luther, he said, being a priest and not being permitted to marry, broke his vow and tempted a nun to break hers, and so they struck up an impious match. The Reformation founded on perjury, he said, was a thing abhorrent to every honest man. He moreover said Protestantism was downright heresy, no religion at all. Or if it might be called religion, it was a system of the devil to lead men to destruction. They have, said he, no priests rightly consecrated, none who have derived their commission by an uninterrupted succession from the apostles. They therefore have no power to remit the sins of any, and they do not pretend to it. But what is more important than all... They have not the body of Christ to give, but our Lord says, Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. And above all, the sacrifice of the Mass they utterly reject. And it is by this offering that God is propitiated for the living and the dead. What said he would become of your unhappy friends, now suffering the torment of fire in purgatory, were it not for the Masses which are said for them? I told him that from not knowing the Scriptures I was unable to dispute with you, and on the account I wished to obtain a Bible. He answered that I had no business to enter into any controversy with these men. Turn away from them, he said, or turn them over to me. I will soon dispose of half a dozen of these vagrants who go about the country deceiving the simple-hearted people. I confess, however, that I am not perfectly satisfied with this kind of implicit faith. I do want to be able to give a reason for my religious belief. Friend, what is your opinion of the math? Culpeter, my dear sir, 
It is the most barefaced idolatry that was ever practiced. It not only has no foundation in the Holy Scriptures, but it is an institution of the most abominable idolatrous worship. It is nothing else than the worship of a piece of bread under the notion that this bit of bread by the priest's words has been changed into the real body of Jesus Christ. The whole superstition of the Mass is founded on the absurd doctrine of transubstantiation. When they have converted the sacred elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, then the priest offers it up as a sacrifice, a real sacrifice of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. This is a sacrifice of the Mass which the priests offer for the living and the dead. Well, if Christ be there visibly present, he ought to be worshipped. Accordingly, they elevate the host, that is, Christ just formed out of the bread and wine, and that the object of divine worship may be fairly present, they maintain not only the presence of Christ's flesh and blood, but of his soul and divinity. And yet the worshipper sees nothing but the outward appearance of a wafer and some wine and a vial. And this celebration of the Mass forms now a principal part of the worship of the priest. And many are hired to say a multitude of Masses for the deceased, which they celebrate in private. Now the very wafer which they pretend is the real body of Christ may be kept until it is corrupted like any other bread, or it may be eaten by mice or other vermin. This whole service of the Mass celebrated with so much pomp and ceremony has no manner of support from the Holy Scriptures. Indeed, if a person well acquainted with the New Testament should be introduced into a popish chapel while the priests were celebrating High Mass, he would never suspect that he was in a Christian church. He would be ready to suppose that he was witnessing the worship of some heathen temple. Catholic, what you said about the doctrine of transubstantiation has made a considerable impression on my mind. And I told my father, confessor, that I could not disbelieve my own senses. I told him that I would not hesitate to believe that it was the real body and blood of Christ if I could see any appearance of or change of the bread into flesh. Upon this he solemnly assured me that in more instances than one, blood had actually been seen dripping from the host when laid up in the sacred vessel where it was kept. But this rather makes the matter worse, for where there is no appearance of flesh or blood, we must think that no change has taken place. Then a want of right intention in the priest nullifies the sacrament. And who can ever know when the real body is present, since the appearance is the same, whether the change takes place or not? Culpeter, upon speaking of the errors of the Romanists respecting the sacraments, I neglected one, which all must admit to be in direct opposition to the plain words of our Lord. And this is so manifest that even the most zealous advocates of the Church of Rome do not pretend to deny the fact that there has been a departure from what Christ ordained in practice when he instituted the Sacred Supper. You will understand me to refer to the universal practice in the Romish Church of administering the bread only to the people and withholding the wine which is partaken of by the priests alone. Now our Lord took the cup, and having blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, shed for the remission of the sins of many. Take, and drink ye all of it. Matthew twenty six twenty seven, And Paul, who received his instructions for administering this ordinance immediately from the Lord Jesus Christ, makes mention of the wine equally with the bread. For he says, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now we would ask, what human being has a right to change the ordinances of the Lord? Who has authority to break one of Christ's commandments and teach men to do the same? Here is an evident usurpation of divine authority. 
If the Pope or a council can do this, then they may change the religion of Christ into something entirely different from the original institution, which in fact they have done. Neither prophets nor apostles ever pretended without divine direction to change the ordinances of the Almighty. Catholic. No doubt there was some weighty reason for this change. If understood it, it was found impracticable to administer the cup without the risk of spilling some drops when the cup was placed in the hands of aged and paralytic persons. And when the wine was changed into the blood of Christ, it would have been a horrible profanity for a single drop of this precious blood to be suffered to be lost. Copeter, this impious mutilation of a divine ordinance, I find is closely connected with the monstrous doctrine of transubstantiation, the unreasonableness of which has already been demonstrated. But I would ask whether the danger of profaning the blood of Christ was not as great when the supper was first instituted as at present. Why did not the omniscient Savior foresee the danger and provide against it? The apology for the change is really too ridiculous to deserve a serious consideration. Catholic, our priests assure us that by having the cup withheld we suffer the loss of no real privilege, for the whole body and blood of Christ is contained in every particle of the bread, so that he who partakes of what appears to be bread receives a whole Christ, just as much as if he had partook of the cup also. Culpeter. If this were true, it would furnish no apology for violating the plain command of our Lord and mutilating a sacrament instituted by Him. But if the use of the cup is altogether superfluous, why did the priest partake of the wine? Christ never appointed the bread to be a sign of the pouring out of His blood, and there is nothing in the breaking and eating of the bread which is suited to represent the shedding of blood, which is strikingly represented by the use of the cup. I would appeal to your own good sense whether this mutilation of the ordinance of the Lord can be justified. You have brought forward what your priests have told you, but do their apologies satisfy your own mind? Do you not see that if they may do this, they may on one pretext or another set aside all the commandments of God and to pretend to bind the consciences of men by devices and institutions of their own? To them may be applied in all its force a rebuke of our Savior to the Jews. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I am sure that no mind which is not blinded by prejudice can believe that the priest can be justified in their thing. Now, friends, speak plainly of the convictions of your conscience. Do you in your heart believe that they are right in this violating the command and going contrary to the example of the Lord Jesus? Come, speak. Catholic, well, I must tell the truth. I do not think that there is any warrant for this change. But I do not know what light Father Benedict may be able to cast on the subject. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, 
Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.